And we pray you'd unveil in your word now Christ to us so we can see him. Allow us to have hearts and minds that are focused. We ask, Lord, you would keep away distractions, whether they be mental or physical, whatever it may be. And we pray, Father, that you in this moment would accomplish what you have for us, for your glory. We pray this all through Christ's name. Amen. In the cross-cultural world of business communication, there's a category which deals with society's tolerance for uncertainty and ambiguity. And it's called uncertainty avoidance. Uncertainty avoidance indicates to what extent a culture programs its members to feel either uncomfortable or comfortable in unstructured situations. Now, I have no idea how on earth it was done, but in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a test that scored every country's level of uncertainty avoidance. The lower the score the more comfortable a country is with uncertainty, and and it's more open to change. They work harder to minimize laws and rules that infringe on different perspectives. And with countries that have a low score, life is perceived as less stressful, and risk-taking is acceptable and even encouraged. Well, the nation that scored the lowest was Singapore with an eight. The highest score was Greece with 112. And the United States scored with a 46, which was considered low. Though I suspect if this same test was issued today, we'd probably score just a tad bit higher. Now, uncertainty, of course, is not all bad. Its mystery has a way of creating energy sparking creativity and keeping boredom at bay. There are certainly distinct advantages to uncertainty, which is why at times we can all really, really, really like not knowing something. I mean, surprises are really fun most of the time. But as a general rule, I think it's safe to say that uncertainty troubles us. And this is precisely what has made the COVID virus such a challenge. We like to be sure of things. Certainty is less risky. At least we know. And therefore have some level of control. Now, obviously, not all uncertainty can be avoided. It comes with the world we live in. But as some would say... Is uncertainty the only certainty there is? Can we be sure about anything? Well, yes. There are things in life we can be sure of, like death and taxes. But of all the things that we can be certain about, none are of greater importance than whether or not we have eternal life. Why? Why does eternal life really matter so much? Well, it's because eternal life means having God. Heaven comes with many wonderful gifts, but none of them compare to the gift of God himself. 
Eternal life means having God both now and forever. It's the most important thing that we can be sure about because God is of highest value and of highest worth. Now, skepticism towards this assertion that we can be certain that we have eternal life is certainly understandable. But such a claim is not presumptuous. It's the truth of God revealed in His Word. In fact, there is a letter in the New Testament that was written with the stated purpose of informing the readers how they could be certain that they have eternal life. That letter is 1 John. And I invite you to open your Bibles there. 1 John. Within about 50 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, there were people in the church of Ephesus and the surrounding area of Asia Minor, a church that was likely started by the Apostle John. There were people in this church that were embracing false beliefs about Jesus. Things like he didn't really come in the flesh or his death was not really necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And and so these people had organized a group of basically traveling preachers who went from church to church seeking to convince others of their new and different beliefs. In chapter 2 and verse 18, John says that many antichrists or false teachers had come. And then in verse 19, he says, he refers to many who had left the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Well, you can imagine the confusion this caused among those who remained loyal to the gospel as it had been preached from the beginning. These false teachers were planting seeds of uncertainty and causing them to question whether they were really indeed experiencing eternal life. So John wrote this letter that likely was intended to circulate to all the various churches in in that particular region And he makes the purpose of this letter really, really, really clear. It's in chapter 5, in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This theme is all throughout the letter. I counted 16 times when John says, by this we know or some other direct reference to confidence or certainty. In response to these false teachers, John wanted to strengthen the confidence of the Christians he was addressing. And so all throughout this letter, he tells them how they can be certain, how they can be sure that they have eternal life. They could be sure they have eternal life by passing three tests. The first test is doctrinal. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Second test is moral. Do you obey the commands of God? And then the third test is relational. Do you love the people of God? So the explanation of these three tests 
and how they relate to each other weave and circle all throughout this letter. John revisits these themes over and over and each time gives a little bit more color and a little bit more shape to them. So this morning we're going to consider the doctrinal test. Lord willing, next week we'll consider the moral test. And then as planned now at least, on August 30th, we'll consider the relational test. And I should say that we won't be going through this letter of 1 John verse by verse, as is typical in our preaching. Rather, we'll be looking at various verses within the letter that relates to the theme. So be ready to move around a little bit within these five chapters as we look at various verses. The first step then to being certain that we have eternal life is believing the truth about Jesus. Believing the truth about Jesus. Now John has lots to say about Jesus in this letter, but this morning we're going to consider only three truths that we must believe in order to be certain that we have eternal life. But before we consider them, I'll just say up front that each is a claim that's exclusive. Exclusive to Jesus Christ which is something that makes many people cringe. Perhaps you think, as many do, that the suggestion of Jesus as the only way to God is just too restrictive. And there must be many roads that lead to God, and each person just can find whatever path works for them. I understand how the exclusive truth about Jesus Christ is troubling to so many today. It's just flat out arrogant and really pretty unfair. This pervasive sentiment in our world, I think if we're honest, can even cause us as Christians sometime to question or to doubt. But these exclusive claims about Christ are not true because they're popular. They're true because God has revealed them in his word. And when we look there more closely at who Jesus is and what he did, we see why, why it is that there can indeed be no other way. So then, the first truth about Jesus we must believe is that he is eternal life. He is eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John refers here to Jesus as the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. The promised one throughout the old, entire Old Testament promised to come and save God's people from their sin. So, so Jesus is the Messiah who just like Micah prophesied, was born in Bethlehem as a baby, 100% human. Jesus came in the flesh. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, we see that the false teachers were denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And John takes this head on in the first lines of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we see here that Jesus was with the Father prior to his coming to earth and in whom eternal life is found. So it was the eternal life which was with God from the beginning that has appeared in Jesus Christ. The testimony of the apostles here who actually saw Jesus is that he is the Christ, the Messiah come in the flesh, and that he is himself eternal life. So whether it's Sauron making the offer of eternal life with the ring of power, the scientist with a new gene therapy, a medical doctor with a pill or treatment, whether it's Allah, Muhammad, Buddha, or any other religious leader, all other offers of eternal life fall short. The one offering eternal life can't make good on the promise because they themselves are not eternal life. Do you sense in your heart a longing for eternal life? It can only be found in Jesus Christ because he alone is eternal life. The second truth about Jesus we must believe is that he is God. Look in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now this reference here of Jesus as the Son of God does not mean what we do when we refer, say, to Eddie is the son of Max. Rather, this title, Son of God, is describing God as personally divine and sharing every attribute of God. In his gospel, the gospel of John, John repeatedly refers to Jesus as the Son of God. It it would be a wonderful exercise to just read that gospel and make note of all the times John refers to Christ as the Son of God. Here's just a few. He said he was the one who was sent by the Father and therefore existed with the Father before he came into the world. He said he fully reveals the Father and has all authority from the Father to give life. He said Jesus pronounces eternal judgment and rules over all. And John begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Jews John was writing to could have thought that Jesus can't really be eternal life because after all, eternal life belongs to God alone. But as we see here in verse 11 of chapter 5, God participates in this offer of eternal life. God gives Jesus as eternal life, and since Jesus is fully God, then he must be eternal life. The third truth we must believe about Jesus is that he is the sacrifice for sin. John talks a lot in this letter about sin, the destructive virus that in affects every human heart and leads to death. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. But as he talks about sin, he makes it crystal clear that the solution to our sin problem is Jesus Christ, particularly his atoning sacrifice for our sin. Notice this in chapter 2, verse 2. He, or Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then chapter 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he, that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. All sinners, rebels opposed to God in every way, rightly deserve God's wrath. And God's wrath is poured out on sin, which ultimately leads to death. Now this word here in both of these verses, propitiation, carries with it the idea of turning aside or the appeasement of divine wrath. Jesus being the propitiation for our sin means that God poured his wrath out for sin on Christ. In his death on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Well, in addition to this idea, this idea of satisfaction, the Greek word translated propitiation can also mean atoning sacrifice. It's the idea of expiation or the removal of guilt because of sin. For the Jew reading this, it would have very likely and almost most certainly triggered in their minds a connection with the Jewish ritual of the Day of Atonement. According to Leviticus 16, where Martin read earlier, the high priest offered a bull and a goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the priesthood and those of the people. He then took this blood into the Holy of Holies. It was the only time of the year he could go in there. And he sprinkled it on the mercy seat or the propitiatory, which covered the Ark of the Covenant, which was the locus of God's presence in the tabernacle and temple. Thus, Leviticus states, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their sin. So through this act, the blood removed the sins of the people. And all of it. 
all of everything that happened on the Day of Atonement pointed forward to Jesus, who John referred to in his gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin, which removes sin, guilt, and judgment. This is necessary because as John says in chapter 1 and verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But since we are sinners, in us is darkness. And there is no light at all. And since eternal life comes from God, this is a problem. Light and darkness do not mix. They cannot mix. So in order for us to have eternal life, in order for us to have God, something must be done. The darkness of our sin had to be defeated. There had to be a way for us to receive the light of God. And that was provided through the propitiation of Christ, his atonement for our sin on the cross. So our ability to possess eternal life depends on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And in order to be certain that we have eternal life, we must believe that Jesus is the atonement for our sin. Well, believing these truths about Jesus is the first step to being certain that we have eternal life. I wonder this morning, are you believing in Jesus? If you are not, I, I urge you to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because apart from him, there is no eternal life. As promised in chapter 1 and verse 9, if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you have questions about any of this, or if you'd like to talk with somebody further, or maybe even just think about it more on your own, please ask somebody. Let somebody know that before you leave this morning. We would love to help you. And there's a small little book called Who is Jesus? that talks a lot more about Jesus than even just these three things. I will happily give you a copy if you would read it. So just find me outside. I'll be outside here at the end of the service and I'll give you this book if you'd like to think and consider more about who Jesus is. Now, in all of what John says about Jesus, it's important to note that John did not write this letter to those who did not believe these truths about Jesus. He was actually writing to people who did believe these truths. This is really clear in a lot of places, but, but just note chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. He says, I'm writing to you, little children. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 13, I'm writing to you because you've overcome the evil one. You, you have known him from the beginning. He says he's writing to people who, have, who know the Father. 
So then why does John go on and on about their need to believe in Jesus? I I mean, it looks to me like they already had that box checked. Perhaps that very thought has been going through your mind up to this point. Oh, I've heard this a million times. Got this down. Yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, so did the people John was writing to. And if they still needed to hear of the importance of believing in these truths about Jesus, then so do we. But why? I asked this question, thinking through this this week. Why did John talk so much about the need to believe in these truths of Jesus to people who were already believing them? Why is this so important for us? I'm sure there's many more than two reasons, but I, but I propose two this morning. These truths about Jesus are vital for us as Christians first because we must continue to believe in them. We must continue to believe. Notice chapter 2 in verse 24. John says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This message heard from the beginning, the gospel, belief in Jesus must abide in us. It must remain in us if we are to have eternal life. There were people in this church who at one time professed belief in the truth about Jesus, but had come to embrace a different Jesus. So failure to persevere in the faith was a serious concern. And John wanted to make sure they understood that past belief is not sufficient. There must be an ongoing, continual, persevering in the faith. He tells them then, at the end of this section, the end of verse 27, abide in Him. So so seeing the atonement as a get-out-of-jail-free card or some sort of fire insurance from hell, misses the point altogether. Jesus' sacrifice for sin saves us from the penalty of sin, but it also saves us from the power of sin. The very same truths about Jesus that save us also sanctify us. As chapter 1 and verse 9 states, we must continue to confess our sins. We must continue to appeal to Christ for forgiveness, believing that he bore God's wrath, our shame, and our guilt. And when we don't confess our sin, when we hang on to our guilt and fail to affirm that Christ actually does offer forgiveness, In this, we're not believing what's true about Jesus' atonement for our sins. We we would say we believe it, but, but in that moment of failing to confess and go to the cross, we're acting as if we don't. 
Christ's sacrifice was effective once for all. And God showed his approval by raising Jesus from the dead. It was helpful for me this week to talk to Aaron Downs, pastor of Crystal Lake Baptist Church here in Burnsville that we know well and love. And he's done a good bit of work in 1 John. And on this point, he wrote, So when you repent and confess your sin, affirm that Christ really does forgive you. Allow the truth of the atonement to free you from the insidious pride of thinking that you can do something or should have done something to take care of your sin and guilt. Leave it with Christ at the cross, affirming that his atoning sacrifice was accepted by God and has been applied to your account. Jesus is life eternal. And we are able to participate in that life only as we remain in him. So we must keep holding on to Christ. We must keep believing the gospel. We must continue to turn to Jesus and persevere in the faith. So, so as tempting as it may be, perhaps particularly for some who are, have grown up in the church and are, are very familiar with this thing, with, with these truths. We must never think we somehow get past them. We, we must never think we somehow graduate from them. As one has said so well, who Jesus is and what he has done is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. So second... These truths about Jesus are important to us as Christians because they're the antidote for idolatry. The antidote for idolatry. Look at the very last verse of this letter. John ends with a very unexpected command. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's how he ends this letter. What idols does John have in mind? He doesn't tell us, but perhaps he's referring to the teaching being spread around that was promoting a false Christ. But idolatry can include so much more. When reflecting on these verses, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century pastor in England, said that an idol can be anything that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. It can be anything that holds my life and my devotion. Anything that is central in my life or seems to be vital or essential. Anything by which I live and on which I depend. An idol can be anything that moves, rouses, attracts, and excites me. It can be anything to which I give much of my time, energy, attention, and money. And it can be anything that holds a controlling position in my life. So an idol is something that we are trusting in, in effect, worshiping over God himself. And you guys saw that list, those descriptions. So often these are good things, right? Right? They're not in and of themselves sinful. 
they're really good things. We just made them into ultimate things. Things like a relationship or a desired relationship. Family, physical health, comfort, ease, or pleasure. A job or a career. A country, power or approval, wealth, financial freedom, or possessions, and we could go on and on and on. And the supreme idol that is in the heart of all of these is the idol of self. You could think of any, any, any idol, and in some way, the heart of that idolatry is fundamentally the idol of self. We worship America because it's our country. We worship children because they're our kids. We worship possessions because they give us pleasure or make us look good in some way. So idolatry is fundamentally putting ourselves where God should be. My interests, my position, my personal freedoms, my image, my success. And although we may not see it, me, 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 me is what really matters most. As redeemed sinners whose fallen nature is still prone to worship ourselves, there is no idol that we're immune to. It's easy, I think, to see why Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Referring to this verse, the late biblical counselor David Pallison said this, John's last line properly leaves us with that most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? It's a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. The motivation question is a lordship question. Who or what rules your behavior? The Lord or a substitute? So do you see then how what is true about Jesus Christ is the key to keeping ourselves from idolatry? The only thing powerful enough to destroy our idols, the only thing great enough to keep us from bowing to our substitute saviors, is the only true Savior, Jesus Christ. And the only effective way that we can keep ourselves from idols is to continue believing that Jesus is eternal life, that he is God, and he is the atonement for our sin. And because of who he is, he alone is worthy of first place in every area of our lives. So, brothers and sisters, these truths about Jesus are vital for us. 
Because in order to be certain of eternal life, we must continue to believe in them. They are the, and they are the only effective antidote for the idolatry that's in our hearts. Having served as a lieutenant general in the U.S. Army during World War I, the director of Central Intelligence from 1972 to 1976, and a member of the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame, Vernon Walters said this. He said, I don't think we should tell them what we're going to do in advance. Let them think, worry, wonder. Uncertainty is the most chilling thing of all. We can appreciate that, I think, in a military context. But how grateful we should be that when it comes to whether or not we have eternal life, God does not want us to be uncertain. For as 1 John makes very clear, we can be sure that we have eternal life with God. The most important thing that we can be certain about This promise of certainty ought to give us great comforts and great hope. And the first test of how we can be sure we have eternal life is whether or not we believe what's true about Jesus. That he is eternal life, that he is God, and that he is the atonement for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for this letter full of truth and promise and hope. And Father, we're thankful that you have revealed to us, you've given to us your Son, who is eternal life, who is you incarnate, and who is the sacrifice for our sins. Father, I pray this morning for any here who are yet to put their trust in who Jesus is, in the Jesus you've revealed to us in your word. Father, we know faith is a gift, and we pray you would open their eyes to to desire these things, to desire eternal life, and to see that it can only come through Christ. Father, please do that work. Shine light in their hearts for your glory. And Father, for those of us who do know you, who are trusting in you, Father, help us to see more and more the significance of Christ in a daily, ongoing basis as we live by faith. Lord, may you cause us to keep us in you. May we see the need to abide in you. Thank you that you keep us. Thank you that we are secure in your hand. But Lord, may we recognize the call to persevere, to continue to believe. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us that grace. And Father, we confess how blind we are to our idols. Father, we love ourselves so much, so much more than we know and certainly so much more than we even are willing to acknowledge. But Lord, help us to see where we are worshiping false gods. And even as we know, crises, any crisis, has a way of revealing our idols to us. 
Lord, help us even in these days to see the idols in our hearts. May we confess that sin to you. And Father, help us to run to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the grace and the forgiveness we have in him. And we pray, Lord, you continue to shape us and build us and form us more and more to his image for your glory. It's in Christ we ask all these things. Amen.